you will, this morning, take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2. We come today to one of the most familiar passages in all of the Scriptures, one that every December is read probably by millions around the world is the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what we find is that the birth of Jesus is probably the most anticipated event in all of human history. And the anticipation of it goes back all the way to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, where God would say to the serpent that the seed of the woman would come and bruise his head or crush his head and he would bruise his heel and from that moment on God would begin to progressively reveal more and more about this one individual we would go to learn that this one individual would come from Abraham he would be a descendant of Abraham a blessing to the nations he would be a prophet that would be greater than Moses he would be a faithful priest a descendant also of King David, so he would be a king. But not only that, he would set up an eternal kingdom, one where he would reign forever. He would set captives free, heal the sick, be born of a virgin. He would have all power and authority to judge the world. For 4,000 years, God was revealing detail after detail after detail about this one individual. And you thought a nine-month pregnancy, that that was anticipation, right? Mankind had been waiting for 4,000 years for the birth of Christ. And after all of these years of waiting, the promised Savior arrives. He arrives quietly, humbly, and thankfully, Luke gives us the greatest details on his birth. We don't have much. The greatest individual to have ever been born. We don't, we don't really get a whole lot here. But thankfully, the doctor, Luke, he reveals the details concerning the birth of Christ. And it is these details that I want to focus in this morning. Details that reveal much about Jesus and the kingdom in which he ushers in. For not only is this a historical event, but it is also a testimony of God's power and faithfulness and steadfast plan to bring about a kingdom of believers. Brothers and sisters, it has been said before that the devil is in the details. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, we're going to see that God is actually in the details on this one. God is in the details, and there is a treasure to be found in these. A treasure that I hope this morning will encourage and even strengthen your heart in your walk with the Lord. I want us to look this morning at the birth of a king. And I want to examine four details that surround the birth of our Lord and Savior. I want you to see this morning the timing. I want you to see the world I want you to see the town, and I want you to see the manner. 
So we will look at the timing of his birth, the world setting, the town in which he was born, and the way and manner in which he came into the world. Look with me in Luke chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. We read, it says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the end. And may God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. I want you to take notice of the first detail that we come across. Notice the timing of Jesus' birth. For we are told by Luke that in those days, well, the question is, is what days? We are a people who are curious. We want to know when, when was Jesus born? What was the year? And things like that. Well, the days was the days in which a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, a census to be taken of all the inhabited earth. And we see that this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, notice that what Luke does here. Remember how Luke started his gospel. Luke, Luke told us there in verse 4 of chapter 1 that his goal in all of this was to, to let us know that he was going to write in a consecutive order all of, the, all of the things that took place, that you may have a exact, know the exact truth of the things that took place. His, his whole purpose is that you know what happened, that you may have a certainty of faith and knowledge in Jesus Christ. Well, he gives us that here with the timing of Jesus' birth. Notice that he connects his birth to a particular historical decree. A decree that was handed down by Caesar Augustus. This is an imperial de- decree. This is an executive order, an executive decision here. Augustus has reigned over Ro- the Roman Empire from 27 B.C. to A.D. 14. Um, but, you know, we say, well, okay, we can put it within that time frame, but we can narrow it down even a little more. We know that during Augustus's reign, there was another guy reigning over in Judea, and his name was King Herod. We know that he reigned, he was reigning in, uh, there in, in power from uh, till 4 B.C. Then we're even told here that you had this governor, Quirinius, uh, who was governor over Syria. Interesting thing here. It's believed that Quirinius uh, was governor twice over Syria. And another interesting fact is, is that Luke does, again, exactly what he says. He puts things in consecutive order. And so during the two terms of Quirinius, it just so happens that there are two censuses that are taken the first one here we find in luke chapter 2 it occurred during his first term as governor and then there was another one that he mentions in acts chapter 5 verse 37 and so what we find is is that the historical records that are even the ones that are outside of the scriptures record of a census taking that included the people of judea which by the way normally that would not happen Normally, it it involved everyone else in the world, but not the Jews. But this particular one did. So that helps us narrow it down, knowing this is the one that this census happened around 6 B.C. And so based on historical data, 
historical details, we can place the timing of Christ's birth in Bethlehem around 6 B.C. Dear friends, can we just stop for one moment and just rejoice and admire the historical accuracy of the Scriptures, the veracity of the Scriptures, the, the truthfulness of the, of the very book that you are reading from right now. You see, we are living in a time where we are told by the unbelievers and then the so-called, liberal, the so-called Christian liberals that the Bible is insufficient for you. That the Bible is not really accurate. That you, that you really need other things because the Bible fails to give you accuracy and sufficiency in areas of life. And yet, here we find one of the most pivotal events for, that, that gives us reason to worship God and to reason for our faith. The virgin birth of Christ is surrounded in historical accuracy. This is not a fantasy. This is not a, a fairy tale that, was, that has been made up, that has been written down by people trying to pull a con on anyone. Instead, what we find, brothers and sisters, is that we have verifiable evidence of the timing of Jesus' birth. And beloved, I would just say to you this morning that over and over and over again, and you'll see it even in a few minutes, the Bible has proven itself to be reliable, to be trustworthy. And so with that, I would submit to you this morning that because of the reliability of the Scriptures, that you and I must trust it. That, brothers and sisters, that you and I must trust the inspiration of the Scriptures that we hold in our hand. I, I would suggest for you this morning that you, make, that, you, that you would make the Bible your go-to source. I would pray that the Bible is not your third or fourth or fifth option. I, I would pray that the Bible is, is not what you go to when all else fails, when your self-help books fail, when your counselors fail, when, when people's advice fails, when Fox and CNN and, and MSNBC, when they fail or when the president fail. I, I would pray that the Bible is not your last resort, but we would see that it has been proven over and over again and it is the go-to source for all believers in how to live their life. I would even ask this morning, brothers and sisters, that you would make decisions based on biblical teachings. If the Bible is as accurate as it is and has been proven this over and over again, then why in the world are we still questioning certain things in our world today to be whether they're right or wrong when the Bible clearly defines them? We live in a world today where people are trying to, to say there are more than, just give an example here, the more than one gender, but the Bible clearly defines gender. We try, to, we try to make excuses for certain marriages and broken marriages and different things. We say, well, we can do this, we can do that. You know, when the Bible clearly defines what a marriage is and what a marriage is to look like. We, we, we know here in the scriptures that it teaches us clear ways of right and wrong. So, brothers and sisters, why in the world do you struggle with making decisions when the Bible is so clear? If you find yourself in a situation where you are struggling with choosing what you think to be right or wrong in the culture, what is right in the culture, what the culture says, versus what the Bible says to be true, I would hope that you would re remind yourself this morning that here, even in the birth of Jesus Christ, 
we are reminded of the accuracy and the truthfulness of the Scriptures. And I would even challenge anyone, especially any unbeliever, I would challenge and and pray that you would investigate the Scriptures. Investigate the Scriptures, the the, the, the authenticity of the Scriptures, and see that the Bible is trustworthy. Brothers and sisters, Charles Spurgeon said it best. The Word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. And we see that with the Scriptures. Dear friend, trust in the very Word that you hold in your hands and are reading from this morning. But secondly, I would want you to also to notice the detail of the world, the world setting, the, the politics of the world, of what's going on in this day. Notice here that when Jesus arrives, he arrives when a great king and a great empire is already reigning over the world. We know this to be the Roman Empire, and we know its leader, its emperor to be Caesar Augustus. Now, world history looks at Rome as the greatest of empires to ever rise up and Caesar Augustus to be the greatest emperor of the Roman Empire. And so we would ask, who is this guy? Well, his real name is actually Gaius Octavius. He is the nephew of a well-known Caesar, Caesar uh, Julius Caesar. He is the nephew, but he was adopted by Julius Caesar to be the heir to follow in his footsteps as emperor. Now, the term Caesar is his title, meaning it is his, his, his uh, not his name, but his title. He's the emperor, he's the ruler, he's the king. But Augustus is where it really gets interesting, because Augustus means the majestic one, the honored one, the holy one. You see, Augustus is a, a term that was used for all of the gods, and it is given to Gaius Octavius by the Roman Senate. You will be known as Caesar, ruler, majestic one, ruler, holy one. He is given a name that insinuates that he is worthy of worship and honor just as Rome is worthy of worship and honor. You see, brothers and sisters, this whole idea that we see, this whole thing that we begin to see later on in the New Testament where the people of God were being persecuted because they would not bow and worship the the the, the nation the, the emperor and the all this begins with caesar augustus they believe that he is worthy of this and then all the emperors that follow will believe that they are worthy of worship that they are little gods he is credited with literally conquering the world and bringing peace to the world all the civilized world anyways And it is here during this world setting in which Jesus comes in. The King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. The the one who created the world. He comes in during this time of the reign of of this emperor and this empire. And he comes in quietly. And so the question may be, why now? Why would Jesus come? Why does God wait till now? Why didn't he come earlier? Why didn't he come later? And well, brothers and sisters, the answer to the question is simply, this is the timing that God had. God prophesied, God told us that this would be the time in which Jesus, the King of Kings, would come into the world and begin to usher in his kingdom. If you were to go to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, you come across another great king, the king of Babylon. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. He too would 
be like Augustus, believe that he was worthy of honor and worship. He too would believe that he was the greatest. But one night he had a dream. And he was very worried that he called everyone in to not only interpret the dream, but to tell him his dream. But there was only one who could do it. His name was Daniel, a little Hebrew boy, Hebrew young man. And Daniel says in verse 29 of chapter 2, he says, As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. So in other words, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, God has shown you the future. God has told you what is going to happen. And so Daniel proceeds to tell him the dream and then give him an interpretation. He told him that, he would, that, he, that in his dream he saw a, gr- a great huge statue. And this statue was divided into four sections. The head of gold, the breast and the arms of silver, the belly and its thighs of bronze, and his legs and his feet of iron. And there in the feet uh, clay mixed in with the iron. And each section represents a kingdom that would rule over the earth. Started with Babylon, it would go to the Medo-Persians, the, the breast and the arms, the, then the belly and the, and the thighs would be Greece, and then Rome, the legs and the feet, the nation of iron. They would rule with an iron fist and an, an iron will, and the people would bow to them. You cannot break iron. Again, isn't the Bible accurate? Isn't it amazing that God showed Nebuchadnezzar? And we know history tells us this is exactly what happened. These empires rose up and they have fallen. But what was even more amazing in this was that Daniel would say in verse 44, and I think we have it on the screen. He says in verse 44, he says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king that what will take place in the future, so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Dear church, I declare to you this morning that Jesus Christ is the stone. That he is the king who comes into the world and his kingdom destroys all other kingdoms. Babylon has fallen. The Medo-Persians have fallen. Greece has fallen. And Rome and its pretend God-like man, God-declaring man, have all fallen Christ is the stone, and his birth was the arrival of his kingdom, and it crushes all other kingdoms. Dear friends, God is literally flexing his muscles here. That in an age, in a world where the most powerful thing that that men had accomplished, the most powerful empire the world had ever seen, is all brought down. Because a virgin gave birth to a child. It's all brought down because this child grew up as a carpenter and poor, a poor man. 
And he took 12 individuals and he mentored these individuals. He discipled these individuals. He himself would go and lay his life down at the cross for all those who would repent and exercise faith in him. He would rise from the grave. And there he would send out his disciples and they would turn the world upside down. That even Rome, who, had it, who put them in their sights, Rome, who made it their, their goal in life to destroy this upcoming kingdom, they could not do it. Rome would fall and the kingdom of God, God's citizens, the church would grow. Dear beloved, I say to you this morning that kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but the kingdom of God is eternal. The birth of Jesus at the height of Rome's power is a reminder that our hope in this world cannot be found in earthly kingdoms. You will not find the hope of this world in America or in its politicians. You will not find it in China or Russia or anywhere else. You will find nothing in those kingdoms because they will all fall. Why? Because there is only one kingdom that will stand. There is only one kingdom that deserves all power and honor and glory and and only one king who deserves worship and it is the eternal king, Jesus Christ. Dear beloved, I say again this morning that you must not only take trust, uh, put trust in in the Bible, but you must also see that we must trust in the kingdom of God. We must have a comfort, we must take comfort in the kingdom of God. I know that, that we look around and, and we see the turmoil and all the things that are going on in our own nation and in the nations ab- abroad, wars happening. We, we see the, the craziness, the, the depravity of man, and we see the chaos that is created in poor leaderships and in sinful leaderships. And we're sitting here and we're thinking to ourselves, it, this is really bad and it's only going to get worse. And we're acting as though it's never been bad before. Try being a slave to Rome. Our kingdom, our hope is in a kingdom that was not carved by human hands. There is no king. There's no president. There's no national leader, no politician who can say, I have built the kingdom of God. Because it's carved out by the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, my friends, the kingdom of God is not built by men. This should lead you to rejoice that even when things are bad and things are trying, that you should have confidence in the kingdom of God. This should should lead you to be steadfast today. This should remind you, brothers, to be resolved. Be resolved. The people in Jesus' day, they were not resolved. They didn't realize. they, 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 they They just, Rome had crushed their spirits. And many of them, they couldn't beat them. They joined them. And, and so I, I saw this week where we were told as Christians on social media, I saw where, where this one guy that's for writing for a Christian newspaper said that us Christians, we either need to get with the program or we just need to die off. We just need to bend our will to the progressive will of mankind and begin to accept the sinful things of this world. In other words, get rid of your resolve. Get rid of your steadfastness. No, dear friends. Because we have victory in Christ. We have victory in a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. Brothers and sisters, we need to be like the great Dr. Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones. 
Phenomenal story I heard this morning, uh, this past week of him, that while he was preaching at his home church in Westminster Chapel in London, during World War II, he is standing in the pulpit and he is preaching to the people. And if you know anything like him, he's just, he's so calm and collected as he's preaching. Unlike some preachers that I know, myself included there. And on this particular Sunday, as he is just preaching, it is said that a bomb It happened all the time, but a bomb dropped there in London and the the walls of the church began to shake and the people began to shriek with fear. Martin Lloyd-Jones' preaching never stopped. He just kept preaching. And when he came to the end of his sermon, he prayed and he dismissed the service. How does a man stand when the walls of the of the human the kingdoms of this world begin to shake because he knows that the walls of God's kingdom will never shake brothers and sisters be steadfast the birth of Christ is a reminder of who truly is king and if that's not good enough for you if you need more information look at the next thing look at the town you see, I need you to take notice of the town in which Christ is born in, this, this Bethlehem. Verse 4, it says, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Now, now you need to know that chapter 1, when God came to Mary, God created a, a problem. God created a dilemma. Because here's, here's what happened 700 years ago, okay? 700 years ago, a guy by the name of Micah, a prophet, Micah 5, verse 2, he said this, But you, O Bethlehem, uh, uh, you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel. So from you, O Bethlehem, the king of kings, the Messiah is going to come from you. Well, here's the problem that God created when, when he came to Mary in chapter 1. Mary don't live in Bethlehem. Mary live in Nazareth. You know where Bethlehem is? That's 90 miles uphill. And for everyone who went to Israel, you know that matters. It, it's uphill. And she's she, she not a month pregnant. And I'm just saying, after four kids, it can be hard traveling a car. When, when, you're, when, you're, when your poor wife, your poor wife is nine months pregnant. Can you imagine walking and being on a donkey for, for when, you're, when you're pregnant? 90 miles up. He, it ain't happening from people. And so God calls and tells Mary, he says, you are going to give birth to the king, but she, she lives in Nazareth. So how is she going to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem? It's not even in her mind. Proverbs 21.1, it tells us the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of God. And he turns those waters every which way he wishes. Or how about Romans 13.1, for there is no authority except God, and those which exist are established by God. Brothers and sisters, do you see the irony in this? How did God get married to Bethlehem? But if he did not use the very man who claimed to be God 
to declare a decree to all of the world. They are to go to their hometown. And at precisely at the right moment, at the right time, Mary and Joseph received the decree that they have to get up and go. And they end up in Bethlehem when the time is complete. That in that small window, Jesus will fulfill prophecy by coming into this world born in what town but Bethlehem. The very king who declared himself God. The very country, the very, the very empire that said they had the power over men was being used by the God of the universe to get Mary exactly where she needed to be. Oh, friends, the greatest and the most powerful rule in the world was used by God and responsible for God for bringing Jesus to Bethlehem. But not only that, I did mention this earlier. You see, Augustus was also the guy who extended the roads and the, 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 har- the harbors and everything. And it really be, Rome built, made it to where people get from one part of the world to another. God would use that to send the disciples of Christ to all the other parts of the world. Do you see the irony in this? God used Augustus to not only fulfill prophecy and bring Jesus into this world, but it was the very downfall of Rome because the true king was born. Caesar, like so many other rulers before him, unknowingly becomes the servant of God's purposes. Dear friends, we serve a sovereign God. Amen? I don't know if you believe that. We serve a sovereign God. Mary's conception, Caesar's decree, the journey, the number of days, none of this was an accident. We have been told that history is his story. For God reigns and rules over this world. God reigns and he rules over men. This is no different than with God and Pharaoh where he told Moses, he said, I will use Pharaoh. And through Pharaoh, he says, through the plagues and all that, I am going to use Pharaoh and Egypt to declare my glory. And we see it right here. Dear friends, you must remove all worry today. I know that there are dilemmas in your life. I know there are struggles in your life. But we must not forget the promise of Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things God works for good, for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. Dear friends, this morning, what, what should I place my trust in? Not only the word of God, not only the kingdom of God, but in its sovereign ruler. God is sovereign, and I can rest in the fact that our God is going to work out everything that he has said. Our God is going to work out all these things for his name and for our good, even if I can't see it, even if I don't understand it, even if, I, if all I see is the dilemma, if all I see is the problem, I can know that God is sovereign. And when none of it makes sense, I can still go to bed at night and sleep soundly. Is there a dilemma in your life, one causing you stress and fear? Dear friend, trust in God. Trust in God. Trust in the decisions that you make. That even in your decisions that God is never late and never early. God is always right on time. And He is with you. Even if you don't see Him. 
He has not left our lives and our salvation and our sanctification. And he has not left our glorification to chance. Oh, dear friends, he is working in you. He has called you and saved you and he is sanctifying you. Trust in this God. Even when it seems hard. He is working and moving. And finally, if you'll notice the manner, notice the details concerning the manner of the way in which Jesus came into the world. Verse 7 says, and, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I love this. The truth is, I kind of wanted to entitle this this morning, the, the tale of two kings, because you see a comparison. Caesar Augustus, the man who claims to be God, and then you see the the God who became man. And you see a comparison here that Christ, there was no room in the end for him to be born. Caesar was born in royalty and adopted into higher royalty. There was no room in the end. Caesar, he had his palace. Christ was, was wrapped in strips of rags. Caesar wore robes. For Christ, there was a stone manger in which he was placed in. For Caesar, there was a soft bed. I think Ken Hughes excellently describes the humiliating manner in which Jesus Christ was born. He says, if we imagine that Jesus was born in a freshly swept country fair stable, we miss the whole point. It was wretched. It was scandalous. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached to the heavens for help. The earth was cold and it was hard and the smell of birth and the stench of manure and the, the straw made a, a contemptible bou- bouquet. No child born in the world on that day seemed to have lower prospects. The Son of God was born into the world not as a prince, not as a king, not as a Caesar. He was born as a pauper. FBC, the manner of which Jesus came in the world was not one of royalty and power. It was one of humiliation and meekness and, and even weakness. Jesus Christ was not Caesar. No, Caesar was a man who thought and pretended and worked to be God. No, Jesus is something far greater than that. He was the true God who became a man. Jesus Christ left the glory of heaven and became the lowest of men's, the lowest of men. Why? To save men, to save sinners. The King of Kings became a poor, humble man that he may overcome the dilemmas of mankind, that he may overcome this, the, the hardships of mankind, that he may overcome the poverty of mankind. I, I saw it just this week where the leader of the Black Lives Matter in, in greater New York said that the problem with violence and crime in this world is that we need to get people out of poverty. Poverty is the problem. Really? If that was the case, then how is it that Jesus himself came and became poor Poverty is not the issue. The issue is is that you are in your sins and God is going to judge you. But Christ became poor and humble and weak and meek and all of these things. And He lived a sinless life. 
that He may then lay His life down at the cross of Calvary, be placed in an empty tomb, and there rise bringing salvation to all who would exercise faith in Him. And here is how we know, brothers and sisters, here is how we know that salvation is found in Jesus Christ and in no one else. Because three days later, He rose from His tomb. But Caesar Augustus is still in his. And every king and every dictator and every man and every woman who has ever claimed any kind of glory and honor over Christ, they are in their tombs, but not Jesus. Dear friends, I submit to you this morning that Jesus came in poverty and weakness that he might bring salvation to the poor and to the weak. Gaius Octavius worked and he fought for his power and his rule over people. Do you know what happens when men become gods? They make people their slaves. But when the true God becomes a man... He sets the slaves free. And that is the difference. Jesus Christ became one of us. And instead of conquering and ruling us, He lifted us up. He broke the chains. He lowered Himself to save and to set men free. Dear friends, do you want to be set free this morning? Do you want to be set free from your sins? then you must not go to men who think they're gods. You must go to the God who became a man and find your salvation and the forgiveness of your sins in Him. Come to Jesus this morning. Come to the King of kings who was born in humility in the town of Bethlehem during the time that Rome was reigning in 6 B.C. Come to that man. Come to Jesus this morning. And lower yourself and repent of your sins and believe that this is the God and the hope of our salvation. As I stated in the beginning, we often think it is the devil that is in the details. But as we see in our text this morning, dear friends, it is actually God who is in all the details. God was working and moving And doing mighty, powerful things when no one saw it. I know that you may not see the work of God in your life. And I know that you may question the things that are going on in your life. And in the things that are going on in our world. I I, I know that things may seem trying. And I know that maybe there's some here who are dealing with sin. And you think there's no hope for you. I, I, I know that we can be people of despair. But friends... He is alive, He is here, and He is moving, and He is reigning and ruling over all of creation. And today we have seen that. We have seen that the Word of God is reliable. We've seen that the kingdom of God is certain. We have seen that the the God of heaven is sovereign. And even in the humiliation of Christ, there is hope and salvation and forgiveness to be found. Oh, that you would know that today. Come to Christ today. Let's pray.